0: Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Brilliance Security Podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Bocut and I am an editor for Brilliance Security Magazine. Brilliance is an online digital publication dedicated to the security industry. Our mission, and thus our name, is to illuminate the intersection of physical and cybersecurity. We cover both of these security domains by publishing original content about threats, hacks, products, and security strategies. We hope you'll enjoy this podcast and visit us at brilliance security you. <laughs> Welcome to the Brilliant Security Magazine podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your listening. Today, I'm very excited to tell you that we have Farshad Abbasi, who is the founder and chief security officer of Forward Security with us. And we're going to have what I know is going to be a fascinating conversation about supply chain security specifically what to expect in the next year. so this is a topic that everybody's talking about and and so we'll we'll get um, we'll get Farshad's perspective on on uh, supply chain security and then we'll kind of look down the road about what's coming. Before we get started, I'd like to give you a little more information about Farshad. So Farshad Abassi is an innovative technologist with over 24 years of experience in software design and development, network and system architecture, cybersecurity, management, and technical instruction. With a keen interest in security from the start, he has become an expert in that aspect of computing and communication over the last 20 years. He started Forward Security in 2018 with a mission to provide world-class information security services, particularly in the application and cloud security domains. Welcome, Farshad. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. All right. This is going to be fun. So as I kind of mentioned there, uh, supply chain security and supply chain attacks is something that a lot of people are talking about, but it kind of has a lot of different meanings. So we'll get into how we're defining that for this conversation. But before we do that, tell us more about forward security. So how long? Well, I think we were stat- we've were we already established that you uh, started the company in 2018, but you know, what are your core competencies? Any history behind that?
1: Yeah. What does our
0: audience need to know?
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll tell you where the inspiration came from. I uh, worked at HSBC Bank for about nine years, mm-hmm. and prior to that, I, I you know I worked as a software developer, and then I switched over to doing full time security at the bank. And uh, one of the things we did really well was we had a pretty strong appsec team. And in fact, the reason I joined the bank was that in 2008, uh, they were forward thinking enough that HSBC decided that it's a great idea to have an application security program and actually build a security team that that is within the software development team rather than outside the software development team, which okay. is what most organizations had, you know, the typical, most of the companies have a typical IT security or risk team that sits outside and they're coming in from the outside and, you know, doing pen tests and stuff, which isn't, um, you know, th- which isn't the way you should be doing things. You should be integrating security at all the different stages of development. So sure. at that time, they decided that it was a good idea to build that, you know, that specialist team. And then everybody that was in that team We'd be working directly with developers and have some background in software development so naturally they to, i was one of the people they hired because i had a pretty strong software development background and i also knew security so that i can speak the language of the developers i could sit down with them and look at their code look at their design understand what's going on that was great and it, you know and i you know i ended up i ended up helping build that program and then roll it out globally and and be a key part of that But when I looked at outside HSBC, there weren't a lot of service providers or organizations doing that. In fact, I think it was like in 2013, I was in Vegas for some PCI training. I one of those SANS courses. Mm -hmm. Doctors said, hey, how many people have an AppSec program in their company? And out of the room of 100 people, two of us put our hand up. It was me from HSBC, another guy from Citibank. Hmm. Like Most companies didn't have an AppSec program, didn't really know how to do that. I mean, fast forward to nine years later, now a lot of companies are picking it up. AppSec is becoming important. One of the reasons in the last two years is is the supply chain attacks that we're going to talk about, but really the inspiration came from looking outside the bank and seeing a gap in service providers that really understood the software problem. Um, You know, there's a lot that there are a lot of security companies out there and there's a lot of great ones out there, but there aren't many of them that actually specialize in software security, which is surprising and is, and is not at the same time. You know, it's not surprising because it's kind of a newish field. When you look at security, cybersecurity as in general, yes, it's a field that's been around at least 30 or 40 years, but it was traditionally really focused on the infrastructure, the network, the governance, the risk compliance, that type of stuff. Um, but then as and the and the world, there was, there wasn't as much software. As the world has changed, and now everything is about software, right? We're digitally transforming the world, particularly uh, since COVID hit, um, and, and as, as more as more and more people use software, and the world runs on software, there's more opportunity for attackers to to compromise that software. So then, therefore, now this is gaining a lot of attention. So it's fair, it's still, I would say, the field is still in its infancy. And what differentiates us is that, um, you know, our company it, it does, we're, code, you know, as my banner says, you know, it's, we're the code security experts. And essentially, everyone that works here has a software development background and has been in the trenches. They know how that stuff works. And then when they come to help the clients either to build some more secure software or test it, we're speaking from experience. Is And, and that's... The opposite of qu- quite a few companies out there that they claim that they perform application security or they test uh, systems, but most of their staff have never touched software and they're coming in from an outsider's view. Yes, you know there are some really smart people that can achieve great results in that way, but in my you know 13 years of experience having been in this field, I see the best results when that when that practitioner has had some exposure to building software it doesn't have to be years and years but even if that person has had a year or two of actually working on software development then when they f- they switch over to, to doing application security, the results are quite different. So that was the inspiration of starting this company. I figured, hey, there's a gap. Let's get a company that focuses on that particular domain 100% and has proven to be quite successful so far. And the other thing that uh, is a big differentiator for us, aside from you know us, everyone here being an ex-software developer, is that uh, we also... Um, follow really repeatable and standardized processes. That was another problem. You know, I noticed that vendors often, you know, they don't have very repeatable processes. So three different people might test the application and get different results. What we try to do is, you know, we use OWASP's ASVS, which has about 280 controls that, you know, we always use that as a basis. We may not test every control, you know, we scope it out depending on the sensitivity of the application and we use the right set of controls, but by following that standard, every tester will go through the same test cases. Of course, they overlay their own knowledge and they do some freestyling and and all that kind of stuff. But you know that repeatability is is quite valuable. And then customers can compare apples to apples when they're shopping around for for
0: services. Interesting. Okay. Good. I appreciate that, and that that coincides, I think, w- very closely with what I've seen over the you know, ten years or so that I've been writing about the industry. Is this digital transformation that we're experiencing? In the old days, people just went out and bought software. They didn't make their own software because everyone was just using big platforms that did kind of generalized things. But with the digitization of, of, of everything we do now, um, most companies are making software. Most large companies are making software. And so uh, they need to have an AppSec team. And I guess, as you're telling me, maybe you can maybe you can make that a little more evident, at least to me. So, what what percentage of companies out there that develop their own software have an AppSec team? We just, and I know you can't know this, but I'm just <laughs> guessing. What I mean, are we talking five percent or sixty <laughs> percent of companies that that understand this idea that you need to kind of embed security into your development processes?
1: That's a really good question, Steve. I, here's the thing. For so, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, we're let's so let's talk about generalities, you know, majority, minority, sure. that type of thing. For every one AppSec professional, there's a thousand developers, so that's oh, like to an give idea, you a, right? Yeah, <laughs> how, how this looks exactly. So, yeah. a large company like HSBC, I mean, we were the third largest bank in the world when I worked there and we had huge budgets, right? So, now imagine a company like that, we had a hard time finding and hiring AppSec people, right? Like us with that budget and that size. It was difficult. And I was a hiring manager for a number of years. And I, it would take me 12 months to even find someone to hire them. It was a really long cycle, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And, often, and so now imagine if you're a small company, you're not going to have the budget and you're not going to have the requirement to hire more than one person. So this is where the problems start. So let's say you're a really smart company. You're definitely not going to have an AppSec team. So let's right. put them aside. Let's go to the medium-sized companies. The medium-sized companies have about, what, 50 to 500 employees, right? right. Those companies are in an interesting spot because they need application security. Now you're at, you've got enough size. You know, your revenues are probably 10 to, say, 200 million. So you're doing something sensitive. You have enough size that, and you're building software, but you don't need more than one or two AppSec people like for that right. medium-sized company. So this is what happens, they'll go and make the mistake of hiring that one person, and I've been that one person. And when you're the only person in the particular department, you have no one peer reviewing your work, you have no one to bounce ideas Mm -hmm. off of, no one to learn from, there's no career path for you. So often what happens is those medium companies, they make the mistake of trying to go hire someone and bring that function in house. That person leaves because they feel lonely They have, there's no career path, but it's also dangerous for the company because it's one person's knowledge, right? One person is not going to know all the technologies and, and software moves really quickly. Yeah. Some it's changing all the know, time, right? Yeah. Like we, we're, no, we specialize in software security and every week we have, you know, peer reviews, we do lunch and learns, we do all these hacker hour, all these um, efforts to bring the knowledge together to equalize the knowledge across our consultants, and there's you know there's you know several consultants, and each one of them learns something new, and they bring it to the table, and they share it with others, and even with us, with all this sharing, we still don't know everything. So can you imagine if you've hired this one guy and you rely on him to make your system secure? That's a big mistake, right? right. So because he's lacking the support and knowledge, and he's going to leave. So. The, and so now we've talked about the medium sized companies that have that problem, the large companies like where I worked at HSBC, they have money. So they're the ones that usually have an AppSec team. So back to your original question, how many companies have AppSec teams is probably mostly in their large enterprise that that would happen right. in that medium sector. Some of them do like I know friends that have worked at some of those medium companies, but as I said, they've often left and the AppSec program falls apart. That's where we come in. So, you know, what we've done is try to address that gap. You know, we're, you know I'm not going after large enterprises to try to help them. When I was at HSBC, I kind of looked outside and I thought, hey, there's all these medium-sized organizations that really need help, and there's no service provider that specializes to them. And the delivery model that we implemented at the bank works really well because we had, I think, we had to support about a thousand different development teams globally across different countries and regions. So, we created a sort of a federated model where. It was a central team. And then if if a software development team would come up to us and say, hey, we have a project we're going to start for the next two years. We're going to build a new mobile app for, for the bank. Then we would put in a, 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 but we would put a part-time staff member to become a part of that DevOps pod and essentially work with them on a regular basis, you know, integrated into that development cycle, so that security is a part of it right from the inception. And that's exactly the delivery model that that you know I designed with this company is that um, you know we 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 become the partners for software development companies over their journey and provide all the different uh, you know fr- from people to training. To tools that we might have to install, to helping them select the right tools and and make it successful, um, all those different things we packaged it in in an offering that that uh, that works really well for those medium sized companies. So right. yeah, there we have it. There we have it.
0: All right, thank you. All right, so let's get into the subject a little bit here. So um, I'd like for you to to give our audience an idea of what supply supply chain attacks are, supply chain attacks are, how they happen, and maybe some examples. But before we do that, let's Let's maybe clarify our definition of a supply chain attack. And I I know that many of us probably have a little bit different idea. We were kind of laughing earlier that if my wife comes home from shopping and she can't find paper towels, that's a supply chain problem. That's not exactly the supply chain that we're talking about, uh, but it's the same principle, right? People that provide you things that you need um, can't provide that for you. So that's a supply chain shortage. And if it's an attack, it's it's some kind of a, a... a threat coming in through that vector. So right. describe for us what it is and then let, let's talk about, you know, how they happen, that kind of thing.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. And it's funny because the term, like, I guess, you know, if I were to talk about this 10 years ago, we would have just said third party risk. And at the bank, yeah, we, exactly. had team, yeah. we had a team, we had a team that had a third party risk team. And what did that team do every time we wanted to go buy software or we were getting something that wasn't built by us, that third party team would go and assess the risk And, and, you know, there were two, two options. One, you reject that third party, like, hey, you don't meet the same security requirements as we have, or you transfer the risk, right? A lot of times what we would do is just say, hey, we are going to use all these third-party packages. We're not going to assess every one of them, but we're going to buy them from IBM. And, and if there's a problem, IBM is selling this to us, all those third-party software is a risk transfer. And risk transfer is, a, is definitely a strategy that a lot of risk managers sure. de- deploy. But fast forward to the last couple of years, the whole term of supply chain has been thrown around. And I think it all started from that SolarWinds attack, right? Because what happened is, you know, SolarWinds was a software that was used by companies. And then SolarWinds, uh, you know, um, essentially got, they got compromised. And then when their code got compromised, they shipped an update to all their customers, and then their customers got compromised, right? So it's that whole, hey, these customers were using SolarWinds as part of their as a supplier, right? right. So then the whole term supply chain because they're a supplier and it's in your supply chain, and and and, and then hence the hence the term. But uh, but you know, essentially, so today, broadly speaking, they're using that term to refer to any of the components you get from a third party supplier. So again, third party risk, and and and. Uh, We've seen we've seen things like Log4J, right? Like a Log for, Log4Shell for problem that happened a few months ago, and there's probably going to be a lot more of those types of issues that will arise from, um, you know, various open source uh, third party packages that come that that come from not the company, but from outside sources. And it will, it's essentially, it's been a ticking time bomb. I, mean, I remember having this conversation, you know, several years ago while I worked at the bank and, you know, the question came up, hey, we use a lot of these third-party packages. Should we be concerned? And absolutely, I mean, you don't know who the developers are. You can make a guess. You can go and look at their GitHub project and you can see how many stars they've got or how many times it's been downloaded or how many comments. But, you know, if, if a nation state really wanted to manufacture that, they probably could. So it's really, it becomes a, a bit of a risk management Problem is like you know you can make some judgments based on a third-party package of how secure it may be, but ultimately you don't really know. And oftentimes, also what happens is sometimes uh, a particular a project owner they may retire, and then a a, 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 malicious, a malicious agent takes over that 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 package, and and then of course they have different intentions. So oftentimes, is what has happened is a, a project owner retires, and then someone takes it over, and then starts using that project for crypto mining. So then everyone that's using that library. We'll, we'll start crypto mining for that particular person that took over the project. And, and, and again, as I said, like we had these conversations t- 10 years ago, bringing up these concerns, but at the, at the time there weren't like a lot of huge public uh, cases like we had with log for shell. So, you know, and it's sort of that, Hey, it hasn't really happened. So, you know, let's just not worry about it. Right. And I think at the time, like I said, we, 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 we resulted on that risk transfer model saying, hey, we're just going to transfer risk to who we're buying these third parties. Let's just not get them directly. And I know the developers were coming to us saying, hey, I do want to go and get these packages directly. I want to, you know, they were they were complaining. They're saying, hey, every other, every other modern development shop is using, you know, Node.js and they're using all these packages and they get whatever package they want. And our argument was that if you leave it to be so open like that, you're going to open up yourself to a lot of risk. One of the things that we did do, and this is a recommendation that I make for the audience is that, you can create your own um, uh, uh, sort of local co- copy of the package repository. So there are products like, you know, ne- uh, Artifactory and Nexus and those kinds of things that you can install. And then instead of your developers going to the internet and grabbing packages, you can cache. you can have a a vetted copy of those packages Mm -hmm. on your side. And all those packages could be scanned, like, like, like JFrog's Artifactory will scan the packages for vulnerabilities. So then your developers point to that secure repository. So at least what you're getting has been vetted by your company. And then, you know, maybe there's an automated scan that runs on it, or maybe even your, if you have a security team, maybe they do a quick audit of some of those packages, and then they make them available to the internal developers. That's what, um, you know, enterprises do. And that's what companies that are uh, sec- uh, concern about security do. But again, it comes with a cost and effort. If you're a really small company, you may not have the resources to go and buy an artifact repository or have the people that can help you manage it and that sort of thing.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And for many of us, I think with the log4j vulnerability, the most remarkable thing about it was that, that it took so long for something like that to happen because the, the whole, the whole idea that, you know, many eyes makes it secure, It was a little bit hard to swallow um, for for many people, but largely it was proving to be true, I think, for a number of years. And so this has kind of maybe helped us see that that isn't necessarily true. It's so. not 100 true exactly. Many <laughs> eyes could still miss a couple of
1: things that are hidden somewhere yeah, exactly. in the corner. Right? Particularly <laughs> if
0: everybody else, if everybody thinks everybody else is looking at it, then it doesn't really have many eyes because how many people are really looking at it you, from that perspective? Because they assume that it's been looked at a thousand times.
1: Right? It's funny you bring up a really good point because I teach a security course and I usually, I used to say and I still say this is that in security, if something has had lots of people looking at it and stood the test of time. And lots of problems have been found with it. Usually it means it's secure, right? But then look at Lock4J. Well, it was around for a long time. So it stood the test of time. Lots of eyes had looked at it, you know, and and other problems have been found. So it met those criteria of, of definition of something being secure, but it just wasn't, right? So I think... And then the other principle that I teach in my class is that nothing is ever hundred percent secure. So, so you kind of say the first thing, and then you're like, you also add the
0: second thing that, Hey, by the way, there could always be problems. So, (laughs) okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about why supply chain attacks are such a serious threat. Um, I'd just be interested in your perspective on, on on why there's such a serious threat. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, you're basically, imagine you're building a house and the bricks that you're using, you're not sure if one of them has a bomb or not, and you build this house and then one of the bricks contains the bomb and the guy presses the button, your whole house blows up. That's exactly what's happening. When you go and get an open source package, you don't know what's in there. I mean, you can make a guess, you can hope that there's no vulnerabilities, but you know, it's like that that bomb. You're, now you're going to construct your software, you're building, and one of the bricks is this open source package that you got. If you're lucky, there was no bomb in it. But if you're not lucky, someone has installed a backdoor, malicious code that maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe three years from now, they'll activate, and now they're right in your house, and they can extract data from there, from inside. So it's it's a very big concern. I know there are a few companies. Uh, I can't remember one, service now I think is one of them. Uh, I was interviewing someone from there, and they were saying that they don't use any open source packages. They don't use anything third party. They write everything. So it's like I guess if you are a company that you you, you know security is of, of paramount importance to you then perhaps you do have to build everything but in you know it's in 2022 do you want to do that there's so many great packages that facilitate um, you know making things fa- build faster right um you know why why go reinvent the wheel and write this particular library when someone has already written it so that, you know that's the, sort of that hey do i do i take advantage of building applications faster and the modularity and that things are available or do i really err on the side of security and build build everything myself as i mentioned in that example earlier and i think there's a balance to be i think i think there is value in reusing components but i think proceeding with caution is really important and i think what what I usually recommend to our clients is doing a threat model. And what I mean by that is that, hey, if you're going to put that brick in your apartment, um, you know, as Bruce Schneier said, make sure that you're ready for disaster. Right? Like I think Bruce Schneier says the best way to do security is to prepare for the time when something might blow up. right? Mm-hmm. Like, Sure, you can put all the controls that you want, but it will blow up at some point. So if you're prepared for that situation and you minimize the blast radius, that's the best way of preparing. So if you're using third-party software, you should do a threat model and figure out that When that blows up, how will it impact the rest of the system? Have you designed your system that it would minimize the impact, right? If you've designed it that way, then you know, when bad thing happens, when your third party supply package that you're using at some point has that vulnerability, it'll definitely be a minimal impact. And I know even for log 4 shell, there were companies that ha- were in that position that they had designed their system that the impact was minimal to them. And even though they didn't know they're gonna have this log for shell problem, but by design, due to the segregation and how they designed their system, the impacts were quite minimal to those companies.
0: You know, that's, that's fascinating to me and and I'm not a developer, so you can, you can help me here. So every time I have this conversation, it kind of goes like this. So we're talking about either developing it yourself and or an open source third party uh, package. So is there not something in between? Is there not something that, that is less risky than open source uh, that you don't have to develop yourself? So you're getting it from a third party, but there's less risk involved. Well, it's like I guess I would be buying a
1: library from a commercial library for what you do, right? So I guess there's two challenges. A lot of times these days, there may not even be an option. Like it's the world has changed so much that sometimes, like, you know, what you want is that is it's only available as an open source library. There are paid options for certain in, in certain problem areas, there are paid options, right? And and so you can say, Yeah, you know what, given the choice of this library that I can get for free versus this one that I can pay for. Oftentimes people don't wanna pay, so they go for the free one, but let's say you're a company and you have the budget, will it give you the security even if you paid, right? It's not a guarantee. Because it's it might be you might be in a bit of a better position because that company hopefully has better hiring practices. Maybe they do a background check on the people they hire. You know, you don't have that risk of someone taking over the package and the the package owner retiring. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that risk goes away. But you know, there's still bribery. I mean, I know at the bank, like there were cases where you know uh, someone and and malicious a criminal organization would bribe someone internally and then they would do what they want. I was reading an article yesterday. In fact, I think it was uh, written by Microsoft. They were saying it's a thing you know, they, they're they now, not now, forever, they bribe internal uh, internal staff members wow. and get them to things like, hey, give me your password for a thousand bucks. And right. the person gives up their password, even the MFA code. So it's like, you know, so sure, you went to closed source. Now you got a different problem. If, they, if the agent criminal organizations want to compromise, they'll do it. They'll go pay the bribe, they'll abduct people or threaten them or put them at gunpoint. You know, it, it, so you really, again, you have to design for failure. You have to design for those cases that if that happened, how well am I protected? And you know, it, it, you know, even if you bought that commercial software, there could be vulnerabilities in it. As I said in, in the yeah. talk earlier, nothing is 100% secure. Yeah. So, so uh, it might give you some added protection, but um, it's still better to design it with failure in mind.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. So I'd like to talk now about um, what what we should expect in the, in the next year. Or so we need to take a short break. So hang with us and we'll be right back. Okay, Farshad, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, what the industry can expect regarding supply chain attacks in the next in the next year. So from your perspective, what do you see?
1: You, it's going to get worse. Uh, it's funny, <laughs> the, the day that Log4Shall happened, I know a lot of colleagues, they were excited as if they never even thought of that idea. Yeah, like so many people that I know, they started researching for open vol- source vulnerabilities that almost encouraged everyone to go and look for stuff because I think it was a bit of an eye opener. Hey, if this <laughs> is there, what else could be there? So ethical hackers that I know, they all started going open source uh, packages and, and and projects to see what they can find, and you know because they're like, hey, if this was log for shell maybe I'll find something, and right. it'll be awesome. But imagine if all the ethical hackers are doing it; probably all the non-ethical hackers oh, are doing it sure. as well. Yeah. So you know, you got publicity. Once something gets publicity, everyone, all the eyes are going to be in that domain. So right now, there's a lot of good and bad people trying to find um, vulnerabilities in open source packages, and there's mm-hmm. lots. I know a couple of colleagues at, at Forward Security uh, since Log4Shell happened. They've been, uh, you know, doing that exact thing. They've been looking for open source vulnerabilities, and uh, they found one in Apple's WebKit. Uh, there was another one we found in a, in a an open source uh, uh, ebook manager. So yeah, this stuff is there, and it's not that hard to find. So and this is going to be the theme for the next year or so. so that the good and bad people are going to go find these problems, and the bad people will exploit them. So companies need
0: to be prepared accordingly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that we've painted kind of a picture of loom and doom for the next <laughs> one month, what what should organizations be doing to protect themselves against supply chain attacks? What what can they do? When when
1: I'll ask you a question, you know, what, what do you do to prevent malware on your PC or Mac?
0: Well, I follow all the hygiene rules that I can think of. I keep everything updated, and I run scans, and I do all of those things. Right. You run scans, and you keep them updated, and you,
1: you're, you turn off your scanner, or do you leave it on all the time, do you, your anti-malware software? I leave it on all the time. You leave it on all the time, right? You know what people don't do in security? They don't leave that scanner all the time. You know how often most companies scan once a year? They do an annual pen test, right? Oh, okay. There's two problems with that. One, as you just said, it shouldn't be a once a year thing. The, the scanning should be all the time. Yeah, on your PC, you leave it all the time and you update the signatures. Why do you update the signatures? Is because every day there's a new zero day. If you're not updating the signatures, it's not going to catch them, right? For some reason, that doesn't register with people when it comes to software. For some reason, they think that if they check it once a year, it's going to be okay. But there's zero days the same way for your PC. There's zero days for software every day. So you need to be updating your, you need to have like a Malware checker, which is you know your software composition analysis or those types of tools, you need to be running that every day, and you need to be updating it all the time, right? Which is ninety percent of companies aren't doing that, so that's one problem. And then you know there's other problems with this, uh, with, with with this as well. Because if again, if you're not treating it as a as a problem, then you're kind of shoving it on the rug. The second thing is a lot of companies they say, well, I do an annual test. Well, as we said, once a year is not enough. Yeah. But a pen test is also not the right thing to do for software. So, you've heard of OWASP, I'm sure. Sure. You know, they're the authorities for application security. They have a guide for testing applications. Mm-hmm. They, I'm quoting them, they explicitly say, explicitly say that pen testing is the least effective method to test software for some reason. And I, I know the reason is because historically the industry came from a network infrastructure perspective, and pen testing is fairly effective, where you find known vulnerabilities and then you go and train them up and see how you can attack the system. Well, if I'm testing your custom software, your software that you wrote doesn't have known vulnerabilities because you haven't published it yet. So I can't even really do pen testing because I can't go and look up those vulnerabilities to actually come and penetrate your system. Mm -hmm. So when you're testing an application, you have to take a different approach. You have to actually do a source code review you have to do a design review and threat modeling, and then you can also pen test it. But pen testing in um, in, in in applications is more akin to research. Again, I'm quoting OWASP SVS. They say that you know it's more akin to research when it comes to software, and it's it's not super effective. You should be focusing on the code review and the design reviews. Now, the problem with the design review it is it's hard for to do a design review. You need to be a, someone who's built software for a long time, so it's not it requires a, a high a lot of skill set. And, and so, you know, that's a lot of companies, they don't have, you know, at AppSec like people that have that level of skill set. So therefore they can't really do that. And then off, pen testing is often a bit easier to get as well. You know, you can train someone to go and look for problems and, you know, look for vulnerabilities and try to pen test. But again, you know, it's not the most effective. So we got two problems. We're not testing often enough. And when we're testing it, we're doing the wrong thing. We're doing pen testing, which is the wrong thing to test security of the software application. So to do it right, You should install a software composition analysis tool, and, also known as SCA, as well as a static application security testing tool, also known as SAST. Put those in your pipeline and run them all the time. And in addition to that, those tools, if they're running on static software before the software is running, they're going to give you a lot of false positives because they don't know which of those packages are actually going to run in your software. Right. So. In conjunction to that, and probably a more effective way is to use a category of tools called IAST, Interactive Application Security Testing, or RASP is another one, real, Real-Time real Application Security Protection. Those, those tools will run inside your application. So an IAST software, it's almost like having... Uh, SAS and all those things inside the software so you can actually have visibility in terms of what functions are being called and what packages are running and and so when the tool says that this package has vulnerability it's an actual package that's being used as opposed to um, doing it before the software is running where the scanner might say you have a vulnerability but you may not actually be using that package in your running application so uh, but you know I, from a strategic perspective, I would do all of those things. I would be putting, you know, SAST, SCA in my in my pipelines while the developers are checking code into their repository, and then I would also install IAST and RASP so that when the application is running, you're getting visibility
0: um, uh, in real time. Okay, awesome, great advice. Uh, and if I'm a, an organization that that has a you know a lot of um, security folks. On staff, then I guess I can just do that all myself. I can buy the tools, I can run those tools, but not everybody's there. And so I assume that's where a company like Forward Security comes in. You have programs that you could do that for a small to mid-sized company that that can't staff that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and and that's like as I mentioned, the inspiration came from HSBC because we know that we had a central AppSec team uh, because we recognize that we know we have a thousand plus development teams. We're not going to be able to hire a thousand people and put one in every one of those teams, and nor do they need it, right? Like so, what we did is. We figured, hey, not every application has the same level of sensitivity. So the applications were tiered, tier one, two, three. Tier three was the stuff that wasn't super sensitive and all we did was scan those applications, right? But our tier one applications were important enough to allocate someone to them, but they didn't need a full-time uh, uh, security uh, personnel, we would put someone part-time, but that is required to your point to be successful. Because if you go and buy these tools, oftentimes they're they're fairly complex. They're, they produce a lot of security jargon that the developers just don't have time uh, for, and I don't blame them. Right, I've been a developer. There's a lot to know just in the development domain. You know, as a developer, there's new languages and methods and techniques and all kinds of stuff. And security also itself is, is a huge field. So it's not fair to expect a developer to become a security expert, but it is fair to train that developer and expect them to understand the basics. It's fair to make sure that they understand the low-hanging fruit. It's fair to make sure they understand OWASP top 10. And if that happens, if they understand OWASP top 10 and the basics, well, the 80-20 rule says that 80% of your problems are the low-hanging fruit and they'll go away. So, you know, it's sort of, that so that's what we try to do is we try to recognize that there's a shortage of AppSec. So we try to train the developers and, and enable the team by putting the right tools and processes so that on a day-to-day basis, the low-hanging fruit is dealt with. So that 80% of the problem goes away. And that 20%, well, that's the hard stuff. That's why we have us, you know, we spend our whole careers learning about security. And so we can come in and, and help with that harder harder to solve problems. But that's really that's that, that'll that'll really help because now majority of the security issues are dealt with. Um naturally as part of the software development lifecycle. Got it. Okay.
0: All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. So we're about out of time, but I do like to end with this final question, the essence of which is what, what did I fail to ask that I should have asked or what, is our, what else does our audience need to know about either supply chain security or forward security?
1: Um, I guess the one thing is that uh, you know, getting all these tools is fine and, fine and great, but it's important to make sure that you're ready to manage them. So you know, again, I'll use example, me at HSBC, we bought all these tools, but you know, the developers didn't know how to use them. They had a lot of false positives. And so they ended up just turning off the tools and you know, yeah. no one was using them. right? So the thing to, to, to be cognizant of, if you want to be successful with this, get the support from someone who's been down the road. Don't try to do it yourself get someone that's like, Hey, I've done this a hundred times to so bring that expertise and make you accelerate your rate of adoption and your
0: success. Otherwise you're going to buy a bunch of tools. They're just going to sit there and your money will have been wasted. So oh, good advice. And I hear, I hear those kinds of stories all the time. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. My pleasure. So thank you, Farshad. Thank you for your time today. This has been very enjoyable. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that our audience is going to find this interesting. So thank you.
1: I hope they can all make more secure software.
0: You bet. And a big thanks to our listeners for being with us as well. Please remember to like and subscribe if you find this podcast interesting and join us next time for another episode of the Brilliance Security Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me.